You're here with us here on RNFM Radio on the Pulse of Nursing. This is February 5th, 2014, episode 101. Stay tuned. Happy February 5th, everyone, or whatever day you happen to be listening to this show archived. Of course, actually, it is archived. We're not live at this moment today, uh, but that is because we are changing things around here as we have been, but we are still here providing you with this stellar content here on RNFM Radio. I'm Kevin Ross, hanging out in my studio in Colorado. It is barely above zero and, of course, snow outside, and you might think, yeah, yeah, that's Colorado, but no, it's not. That's like, you know, Minneapolis or something it's this is not typical Colorado weather but at the very least we'll take the moisture and look for a little bit of a warmer day here but I'll be warming it up here on my mic and during the show so don't worry about me and uh, of course Keith I wanted to go ahead and bring you in how is the weather and how are things in your neck of the woods sir Hey, Kev. Happy February 5th to you and everyone. Well, down here in Santa Fe, it is cloudy and windy, 24 degrees, and an amazing 69% humidity, which is very strange for Santa Fe. We actually had some blessed snow yesterday, which we desperately needed. has been dry as a bone here since, gosh, since before Christmas. So things are looking up here. It was sunny and beautiful yesterday. I went for a swim, indoor swim today. Got a haircut, came home for the show, and I am thrilled to be here with you, Kev. So let's go ahead and let people know how to find out all they need to know about RNFM Radio, and then I will introduce today's guest. Well, it sounds fantastic, Keith, and I'm glad it's a little bit warmer down there and wish I was there, but I do not like the wind. So I'll just stay up here in the uh, frigid weather for the moment. Anyway, (laughs) but glad to be here with you virtually warm in my office. So, as always, we like to send everybody over to rnfmradio.com. Why? Because that's where we are. So head over to rnfmradio.com, and under the Listen Now button, you can listen to all of these shows archived. So if you happen to be listening to our show right now, you're probably over there on the Listen Now button, and you've already found us. We, of course, have a blog over there and a few other pages that we will be launching very soon to offer you even more valuable content not only about the community, but obviously our guests that we have on, our wonderful, wonderful guests that we have here on the show. Now, we're always hanging out under that hashtag RNFM Radio. Now, hashtag RNFM Radio is cross-platform, so we use that on Google+, Facebook, and of course, obviously, Twitter. We're often on Twitter with the hashtag RNFM Radio. So any questions or feedback or whatever that is, follow that hashtag and hit us up over there because we do follow it and we see the community and what you're saying and we love to bring things on the show. So with with that being said, uh, I, I sent you to the Listen Now button. What you're going to find over there is our archive player. Uh, it's an HTML player, that HTML5 player that is, that will load very quickly and you can listen to every episode. Uh, very easy to navigate. We are also on Stitcher Radio. That was new as of last week. And Keith, I told Keith 
that I was actually going to surprise him here on the show today. I literally just got an email a few moments before we are recording this podcast. I got an email from TuneIn Radio. So if you're familiar with TuneIn Radio, they are, I would say, you know, very much like Stitcher. Uh, and uh, if you're over there, we're over there. And of course, I can't send you those links out just yet because I just had somebody from the customer service side say they're updating our feed and will send us our link uh, forthwith. So stay tuned for that. I will put all of that information on the Listen Now section. So again, we are on Stitcher Radio and TuneIn Radio. So there's no reason why you can't find us. Now, uh, for the iTunes folks out there, stay tuned for that one because we are updating our RSS feed over there. So I'm not going to send you over to iTunes just yet, but we will remain on iTunes. Just hang tight, and by the next show, I should be able to give you more information about that. Of course, we're proud members, very proud members, to be over at ProMed Network at promednetwork.com forward slash RNFM radio. Now, we always send out this uh, phone number so that we can hear from you, our community. We want to know what is what in your neck of the woods, in your area. How are things? And, you know, bring something for us to uh, add to the show. You know, we love questions, comments, and feedback. You can do so at 720-466-3022. Now, if you're not one to leave voicemails or want to actually talk on the phone, I mean, go figure. Why would anybody want to talk on the phone? If you want to text us, you can also text us at that number as well. Again, 720-466-3022. And as always, we'll give you a roundup of the upcoming guests and a few little additional housekeeping uh, moments here at RNFM Radio. So anyway, back to you, Keith. I'll allow you the opportunity to bring on our wonderful guest today. Well, thank you very much, Kevin. Thanks for that wonderful mouthful of great news. Really good here really good to hear about TuneIn Radio and Stitcher Radio, so we have lots going on. But we're going to move right along without further ado to our guest. His name is Seth Hammock, and we actually met here in New Mexico several months ago. And Seth lives down in the Austin area. He began his career at Baylor University, where he studied Spanish and computer science and received a BS in computer science back in 2001. In 2003, he joined the Peace Corps, and he served a two-year tour in Bolivia working with Save the Children's Education programs, teaching math and computer skills to adolescents in a rustic, windswept mining town called Oruro at 14,000 feet in the Bolivian Andes. He says he danced in Carnival twice and played in a Bolivian band called La Orurga. So after his tour with the Save the Children organization and the Peace Corps. He was hired by Save the Children to serve as a technical advisor to the country director for developing computer-aided learning programs funded by the U.S. State Department. So while he was in Bolivia, he also worked as an IT consultant for organizations such as the World Wildlife Foundation. So in 2008, he was back in Austin, Texas after four and a half years in Bolivia. And after news spread of the program he'd started in Bolivia, he was hired by Save the Children a few months later to go to Bangladesh and India to continue his work developing computer-aided education. So you see where we're going here with Seth, folks. Education, <laughs> language, um, IT consulting. He then retired from the tech industry to stay at home to raise his lovely daughter, Stella. 
and rediscovered his passion for Spanish and French while volunteering at a health clinic. Last year, in 2013, he founded Lone Star Interpreting, and he is the sole proprietor of that organization, and he now works as a contract English-Spanish medical and legal interpreter and translator, and he's logged more than 200 hours in workman's comp, infectious disease, criminal justice cases since his practice was established. So his personal interests are his wife, Jennifer, who's a nurse supervisor, his three-and-a-half-year-old, Stella, and in his free time, he reads Spanish novels and psychology, specifically Carl Jung and Freud's dream psychology, and he's logged more than 300 dreams. So he studies classical guitar, public speaking with Toastmasters International, with the bilingual chapter in Austin. So that is an amazing and storied biography. So Seth Hammock, a hearty welcome to RNFM Radio. Well, thank you very much. It's such a pleasure to be on uh, on, on your show. Uh, I've been looking forward to it for several weeks now, trying to plan what it is I was going to say or talk about. Uh, hearing you uh, read my bio like that, it sounds, uh, I think it sounds more glamorous than it really is. <laughs> well, you know, Seth, a lot of us have done a lot of different things in our life, and your bio is particularly colorful. Living in other countries, which a lot of people don't have the opportunity to do. You know, some of us go on vacations, but you spent four and a half years in Bolivia, so, you know, I'm sure that says a lot about your facility with language and your facility with culture. So I'm curious, you know, having this facility with Spanish and I think French as well. How did you put together this idea to do translation? How did you decide, okay, I'm going to be an interpreter? Well, um, it started after I had come back. I guess I rediscovered my, my passion for languages once I was back in the United States. Um, and it turns out that when I was in Bolivia, I actually did quite a bit of interpreting and translating. Um, now, a lot of it was not in, a, in the rigid capacity in which I find myself now. A lot of it was translating emails for, uh, for management or interpreting for diplomats or dignitaries visiting the schools where I was uh, teaching. And so... Um, I actually had a colleague of mine when I was in Bolivia. He says he said to me, you know, I don't like to really, I don't like translating these emails. So he would he would give them to me to translate, and I actually I found it a a, a pleasant challenge. And I mentioned this to him, and he said, you know, you don't want to do that. It's it's there's not much financial future in translating and. Um, so I really didn't give it much thought, and so it wasn't until I got back into the United States and I took the time uh, from pursuing my career in the tech industry here in Austin, uh, raising my daughter Stella, um, and I was really struggling to figure out what it is that I wanted to do because I didn't like sitting behind the computer for 10 hours. Um, it began to affect my health and it began to affect my relationships. And so we decided that it was a good time for Jennifer to go back to work. And then I would take some time to stay with Stella and raise her and, 
rethink of, about my career, rethink my career and which direction I wanted to go in. Um, and so I struggled with that. Uh, admittedly, I struggled hard with it because I feel like I'd, I'd acquired several talents over the years, but I hadn't really refined any of them. So my wife comes in one day and she says, I was volunteering at a, a, a clinic, uh, uh, on 45th Street here in Austin, and she said, you know what, they, they need interpreters for the Hispanic population. So I started going up there once a week, um, and little by little, I received positive feedback from the nurses, a few of the doctors, and talked to Jennifer about it, and she said, you know, maybe there's something in this. Um, they need interpreters at the hospital as well. And so I started researching it, and I found that there really was a demand for it. And I was a little bit shocked uh, that there was demand for it because I found it so enjoyable. And, hey, you know, how many people really, really enjoy their jobs? <laughs> Good question. Uh, so <laughs> that, that, that's, that's basically the story of how I rediscovered my passion for uh, not only language, but working with people um, and and being a voice for people uh, who wouldn't have had one otherwise. Mm. Right. Well, and to be honest, Seth, as a clinician myself, uh, when I worked at uh, Johns Hopkins, I mean, we were involved in, in so many aspects of, uh, of the medical care and working with very intric intricate situations, uh, multifaceted as far as the disease and pathophysiology and whatnot. But that being said, such also such a, div a diverse uh, patient population that we were working with. And it was almost as if, and, and I was working in ICU, the medical interpreters on or that were available to us were just as important as the treatments that we were uh, giving them, giving the patient themselves. I mean, literally it was like, okay, grab these meds, you know, grab this equipment, and I need the interpreter now. You know, I mean, it was just such a comfort to have someone like yourself there um, because we as clinicians, I know personally for myself, I do not like to give care to anyone who is not aware of what's going on, especially when the patient is still, you know, conscious. <laughs> and uh, we want to be able to talk them through the process, especially in an emergent situation, because obviously our adrenaline's rushing, their adrenaline is rushing, and we want to make sure to, to diffuse the situation uh, just the overall milieu of what's going on in the room. So certainly your uh, involvement is critical, in, at least in my well, opinion. Well, it is. Uh, and interpreters do play a critical role. And it's not really totally understood in the United States how critical the role of an interpreter is. Um, and there's several reasons for that. One is that we basically live on a big island. And so people master English to the point where it may seem like there are not any other languages out there. So people don't really see the need for it. Um, and especially in a hospital setting it's, uh, in, the, in the South or Texas specifically is that the Hispanic com community is just increasing at an alarming rate. Um, and, uh, I don't mean alarming in a pejorative sense. It, it, <laughs> right. In many, in many, in many senses, it has been a, a 
a real benefit to our economy. But in the sense that it is critical because these folks need medical attention like anyone else. And a lot of the times it is, in fact, marginalized because they don't have someone to explain the complex procedures, medications, and apparatuses that accompany these treatments. Um, And so what happens a lot of the times in the clinics and the hospitals is that the folks who are bilingual uh, are just grabbed out of the hallway or something like that. And they say, hey, you know, this person speaks Spanish. I need you to tell them what I'm saying. But in fact, that's not, uh, that's not what an interpreter does. An interpreter's job is much more complicated than that. And being bilingual does not imply one who has the capacity to be an interpreter or a translator. Mm. Um, and so a lot of, and there's a lot of issues, legal issues, beyond the technical capacity that apply to the situation as well. For example, I was in a, a clinic recently uh, an infectious disease clinic working, and the director um, of the nursing services approached me, and she was asking me about my business, and um, she had mentioned to me that a woman had come in for a vancomycin treatment, and the way in which this woman had acquired this sickness was, um, it was bad news to the family. And so the only person they had to to tell the patient what was being said was her husband. And so this presented a terrible problem for them because of the lack of impartiality. Um, he wasn't going to be willing to give her the bad news. Um, and so these kinds of issues are very important and are just now really being addressed in hospitals around the United States. So you're right. The role for interpreters is critically important in the medical setting, and we're going to see it become uh, an increasingly important issue over the next few years. Well, Seth, that's fascinating. You made some really interesting points there. God, I wish I was taking notes because there were so many things I wanted to touch on. First, I loved that you said the statement early on in your comment about being a voice for someone who might otherwise be voiceless. That's that's a priceless statement that I think is just we can't emphasize enough how important interpretation services are. The other point you made was about how being bilingual doesn't necessarily make one um, adequate to actually serve as an interpreter. And I'm basically bilingual in Spanish and English. I actually was much stronger in my Spanish living in Massachusetts than I am in New Mexico. That's a longer story. But I was working deeply in the Puerto Rican community in Western Massachusetts. And every job I got in Western Mass was because I was bilingual. Because the Spanish population, specifically Puerto Rican, is enormous in Western Mass, and we really wanted to cater to that community. And a lot of the community had multiple comorbidities that really needed very specific interpreting so that they could understand what was happening. And sometimes I actually did not feel equal to the task to explain what needed to be explained to my clients and I would use interpreters from the hospital, this was Bay State Health Systems in Springfield, Massachusetts, to help them explain because I felt like I actually could not 
meet the challenge. So for those nurses out there, for instance, who are listening to the show, who, like me, are relatively fluent in Spanish, especially medical Spanish, or you might say social workers Spanish, um, where is the legal line? Where is the ethical line where we might not be able to serve our patients the way that we think we might or we think we are? Well, that's a good question uh, because I often hear of nurses who who are bilingual and they don't receive compensation, uh, first off, for being bilingual, um, even though they are expected to in, to interpret or I'm going to say relay a message um, from the uh, from the health provider to the patient. Um, so it's important that uh, it's important that people begin to, to realize one, that the terminology is incredibly important, uh, especially when it comes to say regimens. Um, uh, another, another anecdote I'll give is uh, I was working with a woman who was going undergoing a treatment and afterward I went to see the, the head pharmacist and he says, you know, uh, after her treatment was successfully completed, he's, he says to me, you know, we didn't have much faith that she could go home and administer these drugs herself. But uh, the fact that you were able to explain this lengthy and complicated regimen to her and make her feel confident that she can do it was one of the reasons that we feel that she was successful. So I think that uh, nurses who are looking to maybe expand in another career, if I understand you correctly, Keith, um, is that you need to understand terminology in the other language. You need to understand what, what's called language transfer, how, how, these ter- how the terminology and the concepts will transfer to another language. So that requires quite a bit of study. Hmm. Well, you know, Seth, I wanted to chime in because listening to you and Keith talking about not just the language, and we, Keith, I can't remember what episode it was, but we talked about the cultural differences and how we can bridge those gaps. Uh, You know, for example, if, you know, in certain cultures, you know, the sister is the one who is the primary caregiver or, uh, you know, or the, the husband, you know, is very standoffish and, and seems like he's, you know, doesn't care, but yet that's just partly, you know, what they do in, in their culture, whatever that is. And so it's not just about the language, like the words coming out of your mouth, but really continuing to bridge the gaps of the culture. Um, and so it really sounds like you have to round that out. And do you find yourself educating not only the public, but those that you're actually trying to consult with as an interpreter to say that it's not just the words that are coming out of my mouth that, yes, I can tell you verbatim, whatever's coming out of your mouth clinically, I can say the same thing to the patient, but it's so much more than that. Is that something that you have to continuously educate, the, like I said, not only the public, but those that you're consulting with when it comes to hiring you and for those, you know, to, to offer them advice if they're in this position to do uh, something like this and hang their own shingle as a as a consultant is that something that you would give them as far as an as advice is concerned? Yes, I mean this is something that's constantly having to be uh, to be addressed in in hospitals and clinics. Um, 
because there's there is there are ethical guidelines which interpreters must follow, and so in, in in a community setting, for example, I also do interpreting for child protective services. Um, these situations can be fraught with conflict, and so you you know you have to make that call. If this person doesn't understand, and this measure could possibly endanger themselves or their family, at what point do I step in and say, hey, I need to advocate for this person? Uh, they, I'm, I'm telling them what you're saying, but they don't understand, and their lack of understanding could endanger them. So, yes, there is constantly these ethical boundaries which need to be, an interpreter needs to be aware of them, and they need to acquire experience to learn how to handle them. Um, so it is. It, it does uh, also imply a lot of diplomatic skill as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with regard to doctors, um, working with doctors, for example, is also one of these areas where you need to be able to communicate effectively with these doctors. Um, to make sure that what they're saying, what they're really saying is being understood. And uh, so that's the the takeaway from my answer here is that there are ethical, uh, there are ethical guidelines which every interpreter must learn and practice. And speaking of that learning, Seth, you just mentioned learning for interpreters. My assumption is, because I don't really know, and I wanted to ask, I'm assuming there's quite a bit of learning and quite a bit of, is there um, a certifying body? Is there an exam? How do you gain these skills? Because first there's the language, but then there's all the other aspects of what it means to be an interpreter. So what do you have to go through to get to this point to offer services like you do in all the different ways that you do that? Well... As you see now, uh, I guess you can you can get out of what I've just said is that we're kind of, we're in a way living in the wild west of of languages in the U.S. If you look at the U.S. Census data uh, from the latest census, which I believe was 2010, you see that it's not just Spanish, but the number of of uh, bilingual or multilingual persons or monolingual persons from other countries coming to the U.S. is increasing at an alarming rate. Um, So living in the wild west of foreign languages, I have found I am not licensed in any specific medical capacity. I have undergone some training with uh, certified medical interpreters and federal legal interpreters um, and have uh, have acquired some community interpreting experience and and certificates in community interpreting. Um, So for me to get work, what it really took was involving myself in the local interpreting community and translating community, getting to know other people, uh, making contacts. And what I have found more often than not is that people or clinics will just call me and say, hey, We've got a couple of Spanish-speaking patients, and we need to administer this regimen 
and we need somebody to help. And they, I've never been questioned about my certifications. Now, I think at the higher level, when you're going to work in a much more rigid capacity, uh, these certifications are important. There's the there's a National Association of Medical Interpreters, for example. Um, here at the University of Texas, they have a medical uh, certificate, uh, medical interpreter certification course, um, and a lot of the agencies, um, such as Masterword, Lionbridge. Um, they will have assessments, their own assessments, to measure your capacity to be a medical interpreter to take on their assignments. But in short, to get started, you need to be uh, you need to be well read. You need to have some experience in the medical community, and really just be charismatic and sell hmm. it. And so I did a I was a keynote speaker at the Austin Association of Interpreters and Translators meeting uh, last uh, in December, and someone presented asked me the same question, and I said, "Look, you can charge whatever you want because most of the time they're going to be happy to pay it because they need you, and the main thing is is that you need to be able to sell your services. That is above and beyond in this wild west." of foreign languages is what mm. you need to be able to do to get started, to get started. Well, you know, Seth, I see your services. So let's, um, cause I love talking about technology. <laughs> we are, you know, in my consulting firm, the nurses and the, the healthcare providers we're in the home. So we're hot spotting out there in the community and we're completely paperless. We use tablets and uh, mobile devices for teaching, for documentation. And we've also at times found ourselves in a situation where one of our members has been, members of the team, has been in a home where we were certain there was somebody that was available to be able to bridge some of those language and cultural gaps. But unfortunately, that person was not available uh, in person, but what we were able to do is call them up via a FaceTime chat so that they could actually hear and see what we were doing. But, 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 here, but let me preface it by saying that what we wanted, because we do like having the person on site, we like to have uh, the cultural or language specialists on, on site with our patients just so that they can really help us interpret body language and what's going on in the family, especially when we're dealing with situations where there are multiple family members involved, like in the room. And we have so many tools available to us, uh, but it was great for us to be able to at least convey that, um, you know, this is kind of like the quick and dirty plan of care, but um, we're not going to execute on that until we actually have an interpreter on site. But it sure was nice to be able to call someone up and have them visually there uh, in the room on an iPad to bring them into the conversation just so that we could really convey to the family that we we do want to follow up further and have somebody on site. Um, but do you see that as an opportunity not only for consultants but for us as the, the technology gurus to really grow um, 
our reach and cast a much larger net and to be able to actually meet the needs of these clients that, uh, you know, essentially, you know, English is not their first language. Um, and like I said, for me, it was, it was great to have that convenience, but I still felt there was some room for improvement. And that's why we really didn't make any major decisions until we were able to have someone on site to help them. Well, I think it, I think in that context, it is underutilized. I think that, uh, there's a company called language line, which still has, which is just basically you call up and it's an interpreter. That's it's just voice. Um, but the, the end users, the people I, I work with, uh, often complain about it because they say, look, the nuances are lost and, and the, if it's a situation that, that is an emotional situation, it's not a benign situation, it's, it, it, it intensifies that, right? Because once communication break, begins breaking down, people become frustrated, they become angry, um, but in a con- in a medical context, I I think it's underutilized, and I think that it is going to become a major player in providing services. So now the other side of that is that when the person is not present, that is live, they're listening, they're not able to understand and see the facial expressions the body language, all of this has to do with interpreting. And this is why I mentioned earlier that just being bilingual does not make you an interpreter. Um, you, you have to be able to read people. You have to have experience reading people and their, their body language and understanding if they're perhaps trying to convey a message or imply, saying something, but implying maybe the opposite of what they're saying. Um, and all of that comes out in the, the inflection of the voice. And so you also, in, a, in another level even higher than that, let's say in the legal context, every word, every utterance is critically important to the record. So you need to be able to have the capacity to be in front of that person live and memorize everything they're saying up to 10 to 15 seconds, right? Every uh, um, and uh, false start uh, digression. So in that context, the technology wouldn't work. Um, but in the, in, with regard to home health, I think that it's underutilized and there's going to be a, uh, I think in the very near future, there's going to be a real growth for that kind of technology and I'm frankly surprised uh, that I haven't seen it more often in the in the visits that I've made. I'm really surprised that they don't have uh, a language line, for example, doesn't have um, a service where they can pop up an iPad. I mean, a lot of the nurses, a lot of the investigators will have iPads with them taking notes. I'm always like, well, well, why don't they just use FaceTime and mm-hmm. and we can do this from the house or something like that. Um, and I imagine it's because there's some added expense for that video time, right? The, the bandwidth that it requires. But those problems will be solved as technology improves. Well, it, it's education, really. Um, you know, to be honest, Seth and, and Keith, and I know, Keith, you had something in court for the community. Really what it comes down to is that 
I think that these services, they have access to some of these technologies, but they're not even coming near to their uh, capacity of what they can do with them. So, uh, I mean, cellular companies are actually providing more LTE service so that we can have Wi-Fi uh, availability or, you know, we can access a lot of information uh, from our mobile devices and it's getting actually cheaper and cheaper every year, at least from my business standpoint. So I just think it, it just takes a little bit more uh, of some education, which this is where I come into play because I can talk clinical and I can also talk tech because a lot of these services, quite frankly, how we do it in our company, it's very streamlined and it doesn't take a lot as far from a financial standpoint. It, we don't even notice it. Actually, we realize gains on the back end because of all the time that we save. Yeah, so Kevin, I, I, I would assume it saves you so much time on that end. And I would also think that as the, as the country ages and as we're pushing more for ambulatory and preventive care and less hospital-based care, we're going to have more patients at home who speak other languages, some of whom don't have a command of English that we need to educate in the home. So it feels like home health agencies really have to get on the ball with this because if we're going to be serving more and more clients living at home or living in some sort of home-based situation, we need to have that sort of technology at our fingertips. And it's people like you, Seth, who might be able to be on the cutting edge of delivering that sort of service. Yeah, I mean, a lot of those, a lot of the home health visits that I make uh, it never really, it never requires any kind of physical assessment. Um, and a lot of the times it's just, uh, it's instructing people on what, what's going to be the next step, uh, okay. with regard to their diet, for example, or, or maybe that they need to extend their walking time, uh, to recover from, uh, an injury to an extra 15 minutes or something like that. And, giving them uh, a little more information and education about that. So I think that we're going to see that very soon. Yes, I would expect so. Right. Well, and, and, and at times we've had to use some really raw uh, technology like Google Translate, basically, again, to go back to the uh, client and say, listen, this is not comprehensive. Unfortunately, I don't have access to the interpreter. They're not here today or whatever that is. And so we really just kind of had to lay that out through Google Translate or some other app that we're using to at least convey that message to the person. Because we know as clinicians, we know, especially as nurses, we can really get the intimate details about what's going on with our patients. Uh, I mean, I think we probably have that relationship and we've talked about it often on the show Seth is that nurses are really well positioned to get those details that most other clinicians are not getting uh, of course I'm come from a place of bias but you know this is all the, we talk <laughs> about it often we really do and to not have that engagement uh, that that verbal engagement and to really look at the body language of the person and have somebody there an interpreter and a, and a, a cultural specialist to help us um, engage with the with the client. We're not. We are not getting the full picture. We are not practicing with all of the lights on. So it's true. You know. It's true, and I think that's one of the things where we we're, we're constantly walking that line, right? Is like, okay, what are we sacrificing by by doing this over the air rather than being right there with the person? And you know, of course, from my standpoint, 
it's always better to be there two or three feet from that person with the healthcare provider. That's obviously ideal. But, you know, things are changing and there's a lot more people and uh, and so these technologies provide, uh, they can fill in a gap, I think, where that is not always totally necessary. Agreed. Agreed. Well, you know, Seth, I, this has been extremely f informative uh, for the community out there. Uh, but we also wanted to make sure that we are giving you the opportunity here on RNFM to just talk about the things that we had discussed pre-show here. And I know you wanted to delve in a little bit about entrepreneurship. And so I wanted to give you, or Keith and I at least wanted to give you an opportunity to discuss that as well. So I think we've we've definitely covered quite a bit with with the language and the cultural uh, deficits and and what you're doing out there. So if we could steer the ship in that direction of entrepreneurship, if you'd like. Okay, let's do it. All right. Well, this is your platform. Well, with regard to entrepreneurship, I guess that a lot of your listeners might want to wonder what it is that drove me to change directions with my career. I mean, most people that I meet in in the organizations that I'm members of, that I'm a member of, they are shocked when they hear that I have a degree in computer science, but I am a language professional. And um, so, of course, the question is a natural question to ask. Well, why would you do that? I mean, computer science, you must be able to make a lot of money programming computers. Um, you'll never be without work, these kinds of things. But for me, my quality of life is critically important. And I think as our work weeks become longer, as, uh, as, as our daily duties, uh, the list of daily duties becomes longer, a lot of us, a lot of Americans are starting to question, you know, can I do this for the next 20 years or 30 years? You know, am I, am I going to be happy doing this? Um, and so for me, it was that I asked myself that same question. I'd been in Latin America, I'd been in other countries and I'd seen how other people lived. Um, and I think, thankfully I'm an American and our country is great in so many aspects for this reason that we can so easily become entrepreneurs and establish ourselves and carve our own path out of the jungle. And, and so for me, I asked myself this question of, do I want to sit behind this computer and, and, and continue to wreck my body, um, basically gaining weight and uh, having back problems? And, and, um, and so I figured that it was time for me to make a change. And this was something that I enjoyed. And so I, I decided to take a risk. It was a pretty big risk, and I think a lot of people are are afraid at first when they think of like you know I've got to I've got to make a change here. Um, you may have lost a job. You may have things things in your life may have changed for whatever reason, and you have to confront that that deep and and gnawing fear of what's next. And I think that is something that happened to me, and thankfully I had the support of my wife. Um, 
to help me along with that. Um, but I set up the business. I set out some goals. Uh, my goals were to have this many clients by this date and to, to work towards certain certifications um, by this date. And so I, I set out hard goals for myself, and I started to come up with a plan to reach those goals. And, um, and here it is, right, a year and a half later, and I'm making, I'm making inroads um, where I thought that uh, many times I thought that I was going to fail. Mm. And so I think entrepreneurship is tantamount to perseverance. And if you can persevere and get through those, through those first few terrifying episodes of failure, <laughs> I think that, that you'll start to see some progress. Um, so that's how I feel about entrepreneurship. And it's been a real privilege after living in, in other countries where people don't have a ghost of a chance of setting up a new business or starting a new career, for example, uh, mm-hmm. like we can here. Um, I feel very privileged that I w- that, I, that I'm able to do it and that I'm, I'm being successful. Well, Seth, once again, you've, you've, um, dropped a bunch of wonderful nuggets here and I'm going to go back in my mind to a couple points that you made. One is the notion that you just made, that you just mentioned, of the privilege that we have here living in our particular society and culture that we have the possibility or the potential to even think about doing something different, you know, striking out on our own. Kevin's an entrepreneur, as am I, you are, a lot of our guests are, we tend to have a soft spot for entrepreneurs, obviously, and we feature them on here on on the show, and I love that you brought up this notion of the privilege that we can even do so, and you recognize that, and it sounds like in your heart, you really feel like, wow, I really have this opportunity, I took the opportunity and seized it, and Several minutes before that, you also mentioned the notion of risk. And we've talked about, and Kevin has to a great extent, maybe greater than me, that notion of risk and relative risk that we take as entrepreneurs. And I've been somewhat risk averse in my life, slowly um, sloughing off nursing jobs to where now I'm working about 10 hours a week for a nursing agency and everything else I do is self-generated. And I'm slowly working my way to I'm 100% entrepreneurial. Whereas Kevin was one of those very unrisk averse entrepreneurs who dove right in, I don't know if it was head first or feet first, Kevin. So that notion of of risk is really something that we like to talk about on the show. So did, I'm assuming your wife uh, was really supportive of you jumping in. And can you talk a little bit, just a moment, about the fear and how how you dealt with it? How did you deal with that fear of just leaping into this this void? Well, yes, uh, there were a few. A few having a, su- a support system is incredibly important. And I realize that not everyone does have a support system. Um, it's, and that's unfortunate, but that doesn't mean you can't rise above it. Um, and so, you know, saying that from a position of privilege, I realized that, you know, there's a, there's somewhat of a conflict there, but, um, when I initially started, 
I actually, I, I, I quit my job and my wife went back to work and I really struggled with, with finding what it was that I wanted to do. I had worked in tech companies for uh, three years at that point, and um, I just found that I was really not enjoying waking up in the morning and going to work. Um, and I was doing, I was waking up not enjoying going to work five days a week. So the fear of continuing that for 20 years, I figured, was far greater than striking out on my own, um, especially that I had, uh, God bless my wife, for the financial support and the moral support to, to try to do it. But, you know, I think most people do it in a conventional way. They, they assume risk by saying, okay, I've got a plan. Now I'm going to, to execute it. That wasn't, really, that wasn't really it for me. Um, for my family, the quality of life has always been very important. And when we saw that decline, we immediately said, okay, something's got to change. We don't have a plan yet, but something's got to change. Um, so I actually, uh, in my past, I was a uh, entertainer in restaurants playing uh, guitar for music, uh, classical music, classical guitar, and, um, and also just contemporary music. Um, acoustic guitar, solo singer, and restaurants. So I went back and tried that again. Um, I did that for a while. And once I figured that that wasn't going to fulfill all my needs, that was a big, that was a big upset. Um, that was a really big upset. I was investing a lot of time in it. And um, it's... I think when you have a strong support system, you know, you have to realize that people can support you, but you've also got to support them back. Now, not necessarily financially, although that is a that is a significant piece, but you've got to you've got to really keep your spirits up. And I think a lot of that is motivational speaking uh to yourself. So, you know, I tend to get by myself in a room and I mean, I may start jumping up and down. I may start snapping my fingers. I may start just trying to get myself pumped up for the next challenge and, and just trying to, to just positive, the power of positive talk, I think is incredibly important. Um, and, you know, it's, it's basically just going through this process of, of, of finding it, finding out what it is that you want to do. And, you know, I don't, I don't feel that now I don't feel so alone in my decision of just like, okay, I'm going to quit my job and find out something else to do because now I meet people uh, around town who say, yeah, you know, I don't like my job. I wish I could do something else. And, you know, and I say, well, why don't you? They say, well, I don't know what it is I want to do. And so I, you know, it, it's, it's amusing to me to hear that because I that's exactly where I was. Um, and I think that there are misconceptions about how one becomes an entrepreneur. I mean, most entrepreneurs have fallen into their career paths. I don't know if that happened with you guys necessarily, um, but, it's, but a lot of people are ready for change and they don't know what to do. So they stick with something they don't like 
rather than facing and confronting that fear. And so um, that's how I handled the fear. And, um, and you know, the, everyone has their different ways of, uh, of dealing with it. And so, you know, the, the support system, of course, and then, and then just positive self-talk. I, I agree, Seth. And it sounds like your story is very similar uh, to mine. And I know for me, I, often I do not give the advice of how I started out as an entrepreneur because it was very much not only head first, but feet first too. I just went all in. Um, but what I do say is that for me and for many, the risk, the fear of failure was well worth it because the fear of stagnation was much greater for me right. to be in that right. grind. And, and entrepreneurship is not all fun. I mean, it is work. It is the hardest work I've ever done in my entire life. Uh, I've been an entrepreneur for well over 16 years, many companies that I've, I've had even before a nurse and as a nurse. So I do remind people that uh, there are times when it does feel like the grind, but the one big thing, Kevin, you, it's my grind. That's the right. thing. It's my decision. Right, it, exactly. And, you know, some people say, well, you know, what, what would you do if you were in my position? I would say, well, find something that you like doing. And they say, well, you know, I'm a, a good friend of mine does woodwork. He's just, he's, he's brilliant at it. He's a, he's a wonderful wood craftsman. And, you know, he hates his job. He's a computer programmer. He hates his job. And he says, "Well, you know, maybe I need to maybe I need to pursue this." And I said, "Well, you know, I mean, you need to be." I said, "Something you like, not something you love, right? <laughs> because right. you need to be careful with what you ask for." And sure. and for me, interpreting was something that I felt that I that, that I'm, I'm talented at, and something that I find intellectually stimulating, something that at some point in the near future. Will pay, will pay, uh, will pay well. But at the same time, it's not something that I pour my heart and soul into, and that's because the grind of of entrepreneurship. It, you know, you need to have that that love hate relationship with what you're doing. Um, and so, you know, if if somebody were to ask me, you know, maybe what would I do in their shoes? I would say find something you like to do, not necessarily something you love to do, um, because you may wind up not loving it anymore if you pursue it. And I felt like this was that this is what happened with my guitar playing. Um, it's something that I practice on a regular basis, and I love to do it. But I found that when I had to do it for money, that it it took something that I loved and made it detestable. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Very good point. Excellent point. Thank you for sharing that. Right. Well, and, and, and again, another piece of advice that I do give uh, individuals out there, the budding entrepreneurs, is that for me, when I started my nurse consulting firm, my private practice, it led me into other avenues. It actually led me back to some of the things that I used to do prior to becoming a nurse and even new ventures. So I just dialed in and did really good work, uh, executed really well in what I was doing as a nurse consultant within that firm. But at this time, 
I've somewhat extricated myself from the business. It still exists and very successful, but I might only be about ooh, 25% involved in that. Not to say, I mean, I love being involved in that, but 75% now of my time, my bandwidth is, is spent doing other projects, other partnerships, doing things in other right. companies. So it's definitely led me down to that, you know, down that path. And so, you know, I, I definitely wanted to dial in too, especially on the specifics of your business, just so our listeners know about what that is and, and maybe what other opportunities it has afforded you, you know, as an entrepreneur. Um, you're asking what are some of the opportunities that I've had recently? Right. Or? So, I mean, like I said, for me, if you keep that head on a swivel, as I always tell people, keep your head on a swivel because opportunities, they exist. You just, you got to engage, you got to get involved. Exactly. You got to have the lights yeah. on, you got to have your ears on, you know, and your eyes open uh, because they're there. Yeah, it's a it, it's a good challenge. You know, you ha you need to be tough. It, it toughens you up. You know, I mean, you have to make that decision. You know, do I want to stay in something that I don't like for twenty years, or do I want a chance of being a failure and losing everything I have to be happy? And I think that that's an important decision that we have the pr privilege and the opportunity to make um, in the in the United States. Um, and so, you know, some of my opportunities have been like somebody will call me for uh, um, the National Center for Farm Worker Health. And, you know, we need uh, the director calls me and says we need an interpreter for our Hispanic, uh, for our Hispanic, the, the farmers in our group. And we're going to have a big conference on the Affordable Care Act. And we need you to do that uh, conference interpreting um in three days and so they were going over policies and uh, lots of complicated vocabularies out-of-pocket expenses in network you know um all that all that language is very common in the medical field and so uh an insurance talk too he says well you need to we're going to do this in three days and so all of a sudden I'm confronted with this corpus of language, which I have never really worked in. Um, and so I'm up until midnight on Halloween after taking my daughter out um, for, for a couple of hours, uh, midnight, 1 a.m., studying this corpus of language to be interpreting for this conference at 9 a.m., so, you know, and I'm thinking I'm, there's a good possibility I could look like a real fool here. Um, but I found it invigorating on the other hand. Um, I found is once I got on the, on the role of, of practicing a lot of these, this vocabulary and practice and, and, and reading through these, what kind of policies they were going to present all this, all this technical stuff. I, at 1am, I found myself invigorated. Mm. I found myself surprised and, 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 and uh, that I had overcome this challenge of, hey, I can do this. I'm going to go there. I'm going to be confident. I'm going to look good. I'm going to sound good. And they're going to call me back. Mm. And so after I was done, a few of the attendants came up and, you know, I'm not a native Spanish speaker. I'm a one of the few non-native 
Spanish speakers who are interpreters um, in the Austin area. And they said, we really enjoy listening to you. Um, we think that perhaps we understood you better than the speaker himself, who was an older gentleman who had, who had a southern drawl. Um, and so these were what you call uh, LEP clients or limited English proficiency. And uh, that made me feel really good that I had done a good job. That um, And I had done such a good job. They said, are you from Spain? Are you Argentinian? And so I was able to, to, to pull it off to the point where uh, I had them believing that I was that I was totally competent in in this corpus of language. So, mm. um, you know, that's that's one example of the fear that I've had to that I've had to overcome. And that if you if you just go for it, if you put all in, you put all your chips in, that sometimes all the effort is truly worth it. Well, that's great, Seth. And and you know that that says a lot about you. It says a lot about the passion for what you do and how much you really enjoy your work. And you were saying you have to do something you like. You have to do something that lights you up. And when you're there burning the midnight oil after taking your daughter trick-or-treating and you feel lit up by your work and by the tasks at hand and the challenges that you're facing, that's really what it's all about. I think Kevin and I both feel the same way in the ways that we work and the things that we do. And Kevin often uses the expression that I didn't know until I met him, having skin in the game. You said, put all your chips on the table. He says, put, put skin in the game. And whether that's whether that's putting money on the table, whether that's you know burning the midnight oil, working all night to do something to really move your business forward and move your vision forward, that's really wonderful. It's a great thing to hear, and I think that's that's really a nice thing for our audience to hear, our community. And whether it's starting a new business or not, maybe it's a nurse out there who wants to, say, become an ICU nurse, and he really needs to do a lot of studying. He needs to really get ready for that certification exam. It's putting skin in the game on whatever level you choose and whatever it is that you want to work towards. So do you, do you, you see where I'm going with that? Yeah, no, it's, it's true. With any endeavor... Um, and that's why I think stagnation is so unhealthy uh, for in modern society. We find that so many people are stagnant, not just in their careers, but in their intellectual endeavors, in their relationships, um, in their diet, you know, they, you know, not exploring new foods or different. I mean, there's so many aspects of that, which, which we've found fit into this you know, my family has found that fit into this kind of paradigm of, okay, you need to be an explorer and an adventurer and you need to, you know, you need to, you need to put on your backpack and your, in your fedora hat, you know, the Indiana Jones and go out into this jungle and be scared and really be scared. And you'll find that life is so much more invigorating and, and that there's so much out there to explore. Now, granted, I understand that a lot of people have very pressing, uh, pressing challenges in their life. I think debt is one of those things. Um, I think if you, if you have a lot of debt, that is going to hold you back. Um, 
And I think so getting out of debt is a very important first step for some of the people that I some some of my friends and family that that I know are struggling with that, trying to make these changes. Um, I feel very blessed in this in this way that I haven't had those burdens. Um, and so I think that's a, that's a very important first step is to free yourself financially. And that way, whenever you present your crazy idea to the rest of your family, it won't seem so daunting. Um, and perhaps you can take those, those additional risks without upsetting that, that very important uh, support network. Right. And, and so it sounds like, Seth, you're, you're really sharing some of these best practices when it comes to how, do you, how, how as an entrepreneur, even not just as an entrepreneur, whether it's in your career or as an entrepreneur, but especially as an entrepreneur, uh, sounds like these are some best practices to achieve that long-term success. Yeah, uh, this is definitely this is definitely one of them. You know, having financial stability, having a good uh, support network, um, those kinds of things. Having a plan, obviously, once you once you've decided on something, having a, have a plan, and be prepared for disappointment. Um, it happens. Uh, I think that it's so interesting that when I was in Peace Corps. Uh, they have a uh, all Peace Corps volunteers go through a training, and one of the one of the principal lessons in the training is that okay, once the honeymoon is over with the country that you live in, reality will set in. And so, I found this to be true on so many levels over the years because when you go to another country like this, or the reason that many of us went into the Peace Corps was the intrigue and the excitement of being in an unknown place. And maybe you haven't, you, the smells are different. The sights are different. All these things are different. And it's, it's exciting. You're excited by that. I think a new endeavor is the same way that you're initially very excited about this and you're, you feel this overwhelming sense of freedom by being able to, to make, to take this leap, but that's going to wear off. Mm -hmm. That's going to wear off. And you're going to feel that you may have not thought about uh, what you were getting yourself into. And you may first, you may experience your first failure or your second failure. But right. then, little by little, you start to master your emotions. You start to become better at it. You start to feel better about yourself. You start to believe in yourself. And I think that is when you actually start to make significant progress. Well, that certainly sounds like a high note here on the show as we wrap. Um, you know, but Seth, I, I will admit it. It's uh, it's great to have you out here. I feel like I've got a another brother uh, as far as an entrepreneur in that sense, and a friend. Uh, so it's great to be among so many friends and brothers and sisters out here as entrepreneurs, um, hanging our shingles, taking the risks, and avoiding stagnation. So, uh, and of course, Seth, I did. We did want to take an opportunity to let the community know that they can find you at LoneStarInterpreting.com, and you also can be found at LoneStarInterpreting at Gmail.com. 
And we will, of course, tweet all of this out and send out these links. So if you're not catching it in the podcast, and of course, Seth, don't worry about that because we always promote, uh, we will continue to promote you, give you your own page on our RNFM radio show here, and then, of course, put all of your contact information. So anything that you need to update us with, we'll certainly post that to all of our platforms as well. Sure. And again, and I hope your listeners uh, visit our uh, rnfm.com for uh, some blog posts that I'm going to provide you guys. And I appreciate you immensely for having me on your show. Great. Well, it's our pleasure, really. It's our pleasure, Seth. And it's great to have you here. And we have you back again sometime. And we look forward to the blog posts. And I want to come down and see you in Austin sometime when my wife and I are in the area. So we'll definitely be looking you up sometime this year. Great. We'd love to have you. There's so much to see here. Uh, is see, is see in Austin. There's so much going on. I invite any of your listeners as well to come to Austin, see what it has to offer, and uh, maybe drop me a line if you're in town. All right. Well, thank you, Seth. You have a great day, and we'll be in touch soon. And thanks so much for being on the show with us. Kevin, Keith, thank you very much. Okay. Take care, Seth. Bye-bye. Hey, Kevin, I've never asked you, do you speak Spanish? Do you speak another language? Not enough. Not enough. Not enough? Yeah. Uh, Spanglish, uh, (laughs) it's it's just terrible. It's terrible. So I unfortunately... um, uh, don't speak as as well as I should, but and and we have a heavy uh, speaking Spanish. We definitely have a lot of Spanish speaking uh, folks here. So I mean, the more that I'm, um, you know, exposed to it, yes. Uh, but that's the interesting thing that since I was saying earlier that I I'm not in the clinical side or at least in in the community as much as I used to be. You get rusty. So that's I'm actually true. spending time behind a computer coding websites and working on brands and marketing. So right. I'm letting my skills uh, go by the wayside a little bit, but certainly something that I need to continue to work on. So I hear you. Rosetta Stone, yeah. here I come. Yeah, that, you know, that's interesting. I mentioned to Seth earlier in the show that when I lived in Massachusetts, people may be surprised by this, but I was speaking Spanish all day, every day at work because I was deep, deep in the Puerto Rican community and as my wife was as well. And many of my clients spoke little or no English at all. And here in New Mexico, where it's, it is a very heavily Spanish community, I don't interact with the Spanish community as much, though I actually have several new Spanish-speaking clients through the agency that I work for. But as I scale back my nursing work and increase my entrepreneurial work, my opportunities to speak Spanish also decrease. So I may be looking up a uh, Spanish meetup on meetup.com here in Santa Fe, or maybe just going hanging out at the senior center down the street and talking with some of the older New Mexican folks. So I'm going to keep brushing up my Spanish too, because it was super sharp about five or six years ago, and it's a little rusty now. So I call myself semi-fluent now. I'm not quite in the fluencies area that I was back in the day. Right. But I know I can get it back. It's like riding a bicycle. So, Kevin, speaking of, um, well, no, we weren't speaking of anything, but I want to move on and (laughs) talk about the the future. Uh, 
I want to say that next week on February 12th, we're having a live show. It's a live hangout on air. We're going to make sure to get that out. And we're having our good friends, Renee Thompson and Susan Strauss. It is a nurse bullying and horizontal violence roundtable. So that's very exciting. We'll make sure to get information out about that so folks can tune in live with questions and chat around nurse bullying and horizontal violence, which unfortunately is still an issue for nurses in the nursing profession. And the following week on the 19th, we will have Sarah Brennan Mott of nurseborn.com. And she is an inventor and nurse entrepreneur, and she'll be having other nurse inventors and their products on her website shortly, sometime in 2014. So definitely tune in for her. On the 26th of of February, we will have Suzanne Gordon. She is a very famous uh, journalist and writer who's written a lot about the nursing community and healthcare in general. She and her colleagues won't be talking about her writing. They'll be talking about a play that they're actually bringing around, either recorded or live, to facilities all over the country to talk about patient engagement and the delivery of healthcare. So it's a really interesting model that I'm really excited to talk with her about. And our March and April and even our May schedules are filling up. Just go to rnfmradio.com, look at schedule. You can see all of the upcoming shows. And, of course, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, everywhere. You can find us everywhere, just like Kevin told us earlier in the show. So, Kevin, uh, there's a lot coming up. There's a lot of exciting news. All of the Intune radio and news about about us being picked up by these different platforms. So, just tell us anything else you want to tell, and then we are going to wrap up for the day. And it's been a pleasure as always, my friend. And I agree with that, sir. And it's just fantastic to have these awesome guests on here, creating awesome content for the community. And again, it's because of you. We do thank you here at RNFM Radio for being a part of the community. And we're continuing to improve upon the platform here and make it as accessible as possible because we're all about not excess, but access. And so we want you to be able to reach us in every way possible that you can. So stay tuned because we will continue to broaden that broadcast and amplify the voice, the one message that we all have here for nurses. And that's really about elevating this profession and really being a part of the paradigm shift that's occurring. So without a doubt, RNFM Radio, we're on the pulse of nursing. This is, in fact, the place where we are always discussing those latest news, trends, and hot topics in the world uh, of healthcare and our lives and our careers. So our guest list, both past and present, span the whole spectrum from nurse authors, bloggers, speakers, and of course today we featured an entrepreneur It's just really the leaders and thought provokers in our industry, and we just love bringing those to you here on RNFM Radio. So thanks so much for tuning in, and we look forward to having you back here with us again for our next episode. That would be episode number 102. So be well, take care of yourself, and find something that moves the needle for you. And we'll hit you back here again on RNFM Radio. (music) 